Hi, I'm Lori Denning, and this is my podcast, The 20-Minute Scriptorian, where I explore LDS scripture and doctrine for the Come Follow Me curriculum for The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Like most of you, I'm a typical Latter-day Saint, and I've held a variety of callings, from gospel doctrine teacher to institute. I've always loved learning and sharing the scriptures of Christ. Recently, I went back to school, and I'm currently a theology student where I get to learn context, history, ancient languages, and more importantly, how to learn. I thought you might want to share in what I was learning, and the 20-minute scriptorian was born. While I am a believer, these thoughts are my own, and they are not an official representation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thanks for listening, and join me on the journey as we explore the scriptures and the path of the disciple of Christ. Welcome back, Scriptorians. We are still in Isaiah, and today we're going to answer the question of how does Isaiah's call and the vision of God on his throne relate to what we've learned so far and why Nephi is going to use it? Well, Scriptorians, we are headed into some of the best, the deepest, the most profound, and I think the most enlightening of Isaiah's teachings, and and this is just one of my favorite. Now, I know I say that every time, But I think this one might actually be my favorite um, of the Isaiah chapter. So Isaiah 6 is what we're going to hit next. If you haven't had a chance to read Isaiah 6, we'll go through it together. But take a minute, read through it, refresh kind of what's going to go on. It's, It's a great narrative. There's a lot going on, a lot of detail. And we certainly won't be able to get to it all uh, in just a few minutes. But if you haven't had a chance, stop what you're doing now, go back, read it. And then um, when it goes through, it'll make a little bit more sense. So to recap where we've been, Nephi has been, and Jacob to some point, but Nephi has been using Isaiah and he tells us he's going to liken it unto his people. And some of the things we know about what's going on with their people uh, and his people and maybe us too is going to be that there's going to be a judgment of falling away and apostasy. It could be Laman and Lemuel and their families, but we also know that he sees into the future and he sees that the Nephites are going to experience a fair amount of apostasy and and yet they will be saved in the end as we've been learning through his writings that in the end the book will go forth that the gentiles will bring back a remnant will come back and finally there will be hope and that would be partly through us and the the covenant being restored the new and everlasting covenant so we've gone through these themes of uh, judgment and hope of j- destruction and salvation. You're also going to see some today of life and death. And so some of this is wrapped together by uh, how is that going to happen? A remnant, a remnant. And so you're going to say, well, Lori, I ha- you just told me to just go read Isaiah 6 and I don't know how that's there, but um, I think we're going to see that that's exactly the themes of why this story is, is, is there. Now, Prophets, we know there are lots of what we call theophanies or cosmologies. Those are visions of God is theophany. Vision, uh, Theo is God and phony is vision. So theophany or a cosmology, a view of the cosmos or the creation. And so if you think about Moses and Abraham, um, even Lehi, we talked about that in First Nephi 1. Uh, you also have Ezekiel and a number of others, Micaiah in 1 Kings 22. Uh, there are lots of visions. Uh, Daniel has one, Daniel 7. Um, lots of theophanies, lots of visions of God. And, uh, and I recently had a missionary friend ask me, he said, 
hey, Lori, I, I don't understand how it says no man has ever seen God and yet hear these visions of God, even maybe an ether. And I think it's, we've never seen him maybe like he really is or unless we're in the spirit or something like that because clearly there are these visions. We've talked about some of them before and one of the things that has, should jump out at you is you've read six chapters basically of Isaiah, the way it's laid out. And, and then you hit the call of a prophet and his vision of God and his temple. And isn't that weird? Shouldn't it be chronological? It feels like it should be chronological. And yet it pops in there later. And if you hadn't noticed that now you're probably thinking, yeah, that is weird. And scholars have thought that all along. So one thing that is important to remember is sometimes in these stories, they're not chronological. They are, they're theological. So they're going to teach us something about God. They're going to teach us something about the prophet's message from the Lord rather than um, a history, right? It's, it's not a YouTube video of what happened next. It's theology. It's going to tell us something about God. And so as we see, let's go back then and say, and, and what, what are we going to see before? And before again, we've seen these, uh, it started out with the vision of the day of the Lord when um, God's kingdom would rule in the mountains, right? The temple of the Lord would be in the mountains and then there would be peace and justice, right? With second coming, uh, heaven and earth united, uh, Eden restored. So we have Jerusalem, Mount Zion, all of that right out of the gate, that salvation, redemption, God wins, right? That idea. And yet, then you go through all these stories about, we just did the vineyard and some of these others where you're like, people are seem to be judged and it's like they're, you know, making military might to oppress others. They're uh, forgetting the poor. They are forgetting God. They're doing all these terrible things and, and there's destruction coming. So how do those two things link in to this? Well, let's jump into it and see if we can see what uh, Isaiah is trying to teach us about God's message. So he's already led us up to this judgment and hope and a remnant that's going to be saved. Ultimately, God will win. Then he's going to tell us this story. Keep that in mind. Okay, let's jump over to two, uh, 2 Nephi 16 or Isaiah 6. 2 Nephi 16. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So something just should jump out you right away. You haven't had a lot of historical markers yet. So Isaiah, in this case, is going is saying something about King Uzziah. And you can read about him in Kings and Chronicles. But let me give you the overview because I think this is part of the story that's important. But it is historical, so the Nephites probably wouldn't remember this, and we certainly have to look this up. But King Uzziah was the king of Judah in the south. And then again, there was king in the north in Israel. So this is the time of the divided kingdom. So Israel, north, Ephraim, all Samaria, all that in the north. And then Judah, Jerusalem, and Uzziah in the south. Now, Uzziah wasn't a terrible king, but he wasn't a great king either. In fact, he was confined to his um, palace or his home because of a skin disease and he had gone into the temple where he was not a, a consecrated priest and so he had some uh, some challenges with being obedient and yet 
the the great superpower of the day was Assyria. So Assyria is kind of, I like to think of it as Nineveh. That's where Jonah, remember the prophet Jonah went? Uh, downtown Nineveh is their capital. Very, very uh, strong, tough people. Had a standing army known for their brutality. They were tough. And they were threatening. But at this point, Assyria was going through some challenges with their own leadership. And so there had been a bit of a lull. And during that lull, there was a little bit of a power vacuum. And so Israel in the north and Judah in the south had experienced a little revitalization where they were feeling like there was pressure before when Assyria was really strong and great. And yet um, the last two or three kings had been having some uh, power struggle of their own, so they were worried about staying close at home. And so uh, King Uzziah had had done okay, and so things were kind of settled out. At the same time, the uh, the northern tribes and Syria, not Assyria, two different places, Syria, which is their border there, um, out of Damascus, kind of says, well, man, we should team up. We should team up with uh, together to fight Assyria. And uh, so that was called, it's called the Syria-Ephraimite War, um, or Confederacy. So they team up, but the Lord says, don't do that. You should be trusting in me. Don't keep trusting in each other. Egypt is on the other side, so there are these superpowers and this confederacy and all these things. But in the meantime, Uzziah had been, things were kind of stable. So when Uzziah dies, when Uzziah dies, what are the people thinking? Now, Jotham's the next king, if I remember right. And Jotham isn't, he's not bad, but he's not great. So if you were in the middle of this serious potential power struggle, superpowers, and you're kind of sandwiched in the middle, you're the rock in a hard place of Assyria and Egypt, and the northern kingdoms are starting to team up, and there's some problems going on and intrigue, and you're like, the king, the stability that we had, he's gone. In the year that King Uzziah died, in the year where you're like, it all could come crashing down, in the year that we were on the cusp of, we don't know what's going to happen, this is when Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord. And it says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So when the king and the one you, you're worried about and earthly kingdoms, what does he see? The true king, the Lord. And he's sitting on his throne. He's the king. And he is high and lifted up. He's the great king. He's the true power. So while we're worried about these earthly concerns, and yeah, they're concerning, the one that we should put our trust in, the one that is above all, the one that is the most powerful, the Lord, on his throne is immediately contrasted in this verse. So we're immediately set to, I'm worried about earthly things, but there's God, the one that is in charge of everything. And his train, uh, it's like his robe, right? Um, like a train, like a, you think of like a veil of a woman's veil, but his, he's in a robe and his robes are the very hem, the very little tiny part is just all the way down into the temple. 
Now the hem is completely filling the temple. So we're getting the idea of high, high and exalted. And we're getting that his glory, his robes, his power, his authority is just even the smallest part completely fills. So this isn't just Uzziah the king. This isn't just some regional somebody. This is the most high God. This is God himself. And his glory and authority is high, exalted, most high and filling the temple. Remember, the temple is where heaven and earth meet. And so it, when he looks up, he's no longer in the earthly temple, but he's kind of transported or, you you know, the veil is pulled back and he can now see what is there. So just remember this contrast between earthly king and heavenly king. And then it goes on and it says, above it, and it's talking about the train and the throne, above it stood the seraphim. Uh, were the fiery ones. Each one had six wings with, with twain or two he covered his faith, face and with two he covered his feet and with two he did fly. And we can talk about them another day And but they usually are there um, uh, representing where God uh, is, right? The cherubim or the seraphim and they are covering their eyes and their hands. They're only acting and seeing and speaking by God's command. So then one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory. Um, this is the most holy, the most high. Uh, in Hebrew, when you say something twice, uh, that's how you make it really impactful. Like we do that in in English a little bit. If you say something, I'm like, well, I don't love him. I don't love, love him. I love him, right? So love, love or go, go or something like that. But when they do the same thing, they would say, holy, holy. And in English translations, they'll have to say more holy or bigger or better. Or they'll have to do something, but they literally put holy, holy. And then you get all three. It's really uh, big. The idea of holiness, holiness to the Lord is something separate unique, sacred, other. So it's, it's, he's bigger, transcendent, a separate, unique, powerful. He's, and it's three times. It's the supreme, right? It's the super holy or the super fantastic, amazing, separate, holy, holy, holy. And so they're, they're praising, they're praising him and calling out holy, holy, holy. Next, it says, um, and the posts of the door moved at the voice uh, of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Um, we see this a lot, this uh, when the Lord speaks or when he's there, that there's shaking. And remember on Sinai, it's earthquakes and lightnings. And, um, and, and so the doors moved with the voice, oh, right? It's just, whoa, it's overwhelming. And the house, the temple was filled with smoke. It could be the smoke of the altar. Sometimes you think of the pillar of fire or the smoke that the Shekinah that they followed throughout Israel, right? So it's a sign. It's a sign of God's glory being there, his presence. So it's filled with this. And it's like, whoa. And then listen to Isaiah's response. And then said, I, woe is unto me for I am undone. Then the word undone here is like, I am dissolved. I am, I'm blown away. Like, like physically, like I'm just the power, the glory, the holiness, the righteousness of God is, is just completely, he sees his, his mortality, he sees his sinfulness, he sees 
the greatness of God and realize he's nothing. And he's like, I am, I am dissipated. I'm undone. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And then this next line is really odd, right? And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Does that strike you as odd that, yeah, not that he's feeling overwhelmed by, by seeing God, not, not the glory and the difference. I think we would all be very humbled and amazed uh, when John in Revelation sees it, right? He falls to his knees. It's, it's this, and at one point he's weeping. Um, it's just, it's this overwhelming experience of, of glory and might. But it's kind of odd that he's like, because I'm, my lips are unclean and the people that I'm with have unclean lips. I wonder what that means. Let's look at that for a second. So I think the idea here is, uh, he says he's ruined, he's, he's, his lips are unclean, and it's kind of used, the concept is to be silent. I'm, I'm silenced. And it's this kind of silence that's brought about by loss or death. Um, to translate uh, silenced would be very telling in this context. I think it would say he's excluded from the heavenly choir. He can't even, um, remember God's high and exalted. It's far from him. And he realizes in his, his distance, he is excluded even from maybe the participation, the possibility of participating, you know, in praising from afar. And so this judgment comes from this linking that, they might even have the merest sin, just lips, the remotest contact. He can't look, and, and it's fatal, right? He's saying, I see my merest sin. I am so separate from you. I can't even praise you properly, and my people can't either. Um, possibly it's a confession of the seriousness of them living among sinful people, right? Maybe it's I cannot even confess I'm so distant from you. I also think that it's this idea you're going to see when he's redeemed here in a moment that he draws close and now he can speak, that he is separated by his presence, that the presence he is, just like all of us, we have been removed from God's holy presence through sin and through transgression. And so he's saying, I can't even draw close to you now that I especially see. At some point then, something amazing happens. It, um, he, we see this. He says, I am undone. And then one of the seraphim flew unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs off the altar. Which altar? I don't know. I don't know if this is the altar that's the altar of um, incense or if this is the altar of sacrifice that's a little farther out. But either way, it's a live coal. And you've got to think, this is kind of scary. He's bringing tongs and a coal, and he's bringing at you. It would be very frightening. And it says, it touched, um, he laid it on my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. The From the altar itself, this purifying burning this purifying fire from the sacrifice, this atonement that he has been redeemed. And so where he says, my lips are what is unholy and unpure, then my lips are what's going to be uh, purified, obviously symbolic of all of him. I love the, the feeling there that it's my, I, it could be detrimental. I'm bringing this terrible, scary coal and now freedom 
right? My iniquity, your iniquity is taken away. Thy sin is purged. Uh, a lot to say there, but let's move on. And then he, something unique happens. Remember, he was far away. It was the Lord was high and exalted and far. And now in verse eight, it says, and I heard also the voice of the Lord. Now he can hear the very Lord's musings. Before he was even afraid to approach him, he, he couldn't even speak. He, you know, he was uh, realizing he was going to be completely destroyed by the greatness. And now with his, the atonement, he's brought near. Now he's redeemed. He's brought near God's presence. And now he can hear the Lord's musings, right? And the Lord says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I, I just love this. And then I said, here I am send me. Now we've heard that phrase before from people, right? The Lord is, you're now being brought into the presence of the Lord and now you have a mission. Now he's saying, who shall we send? Whom shall we send? And he says, Haneni in the Hebrew, here I am, send me. We've heard that before, haven't we? Think of where else you might've heard that. Yep. Uh, the Lord, Moses, there are a number of other examples of, I am ready I am willing. Um, I love this idea that once we feel God's atoning love, once we come into his presence, we, uh, we not only receive a mission, but we want to. We are, we are now his ambassadors. And the Lord says this. He gives them this mission, right? He says, go and tell the people um, and tell them this. Hear ye indeed, but they understand not. See ye indeed, but they perceive not. So it's kind of outside in. They hear, but they don't understand. They see, but they don't really uh, perceive. And the, the, their heart's fat. Their ears are heavy. They shut their eyes. The, just their whole selves. They just don't understand with their heart. They are far from me in, uh, in their hearts. The Lord tells Isaiah, he has this mission to go and teach them to draw closer to the Lord with their hearts, to listen. And I love how it says in verse 10, make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and be converted and healed. He's like, go teach them, but they're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. They're not going to understand with their hearts, not going to be converted, not going to be healed. And then can you imagine poor Isaiah he says, well, how, how long, how long would it, how long would I tell this terrible message? And he says, until the cities are wasted and without inhabitant. Oh, and this is going to go well. And the house is without man and the land is utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away and there shall be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. It says that they'll all be destroyed. You're going to tell this message until everyone's gone and and the lands are gone and the people are gone they're completely destroyed judgment has come upon them the thing that they fear the most they should be fearing the lord but they're fearing assyria and syria and all these things going on and they will reap the whirlwind and then there's this last great verse but yet there shall be a tenth and they shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. The whole land will be destroyed except a little part, a remnant, a tenth, a remnant. And, and it's, it's like a tree who's cut down and burned. And yet a little shoot, a little seed will grow up 
from that stump. Did you catch kind of what's going on here? Just like Isaiah going and saying, I worried about King Uzziah dying. Then I saw the Lord. I thought I was undone. Then I was redeemed. Then I had this mission. Then there's hope. There's In the Lord, there's always hope. So even though the people will be destroyed, there's going to be out of this oak that's burned, out of this great family tree, a remnant will return and a holy seed will come. Who or what is this holy seed? Who is this important person that will come from the family tree of Judah to come and save them all? And who is this remnant? Are you following? There's it's judgment and hope and the hope in the Lord and the remnant that he will send back to save them. The Lord is the seed. We're going to learn about him in the next few chapters. But there's judgment and hope. And for the Nephites, they will fall, but there will be hope. And a remnant will return. And the Lord will save them. Ah, oh, love this chapter. I see now why Nephi has put it here. I see now why Isaiah has put it after he's taught us about judgment and hope and the remnant. Because chapter 6 is about the Lord and his love wanting to save and heal and change our hearts, convert us, and heal us through his holy seed. That's it, brothers and sisters. Next time we'll jump into, and we'll have to do a speed round, but we'll jump into the next few verses about some of the sons um, of Isaiah and prophecies more of Christ.